Kim Metrison, co-dean of Rutgers Law School in Camden, and this is The Power of Attorney. Today, I get to have a conversation with my colleague, Sandra Simpkins, who is a distinguished clinical professor of law at Rutgers Law School and who has been doing amazing, amazing work in juvenile justice. And I'm incredibly happy that she's here with us today and really looking forward to our conversation. So thank you so much for for taking the time to talk with me today. Oh, thank you for having me. Of course. Huge, huge pleasure. So the way I always like to start these conversations is by asking people for their origin stories. Um, of all the things that you could have done with your life, of all the careers that you could have pursued, you decided to become a lawyer. So why? (laughs) I have to say, though, I still love that I chose to become a lawyer. I tell the students that all the time, that even to this day, you know, it is so cool to wake up and to have a job that you really love. But I guess the way I came here, got to this path, is I I went to college at the University of Delaware, and I got... Mm -hmm really into activism, particularly around abolish apartheid. And Um, I was the student government president then and did a lot, you know, to encourage the the university to divest from investment in South Africa. And it really fired me up. And uh, that kind of carried through. But when I graduated from college, I really didn't have a clue of what was next. And so I did a bunch of different things. I had a lot of different jobs. I was a cook. I was a housekeeper. I was a secretary at a large law firm. And eventually I came to Rutgers Camden, which is where I got my degree. And I'm really pleased that I, I made this choice, but women in my family did not have careers, typically. I didn't know any professional women, and I'm the first lawyer in my family. And so it was a big deal to go to law school and then to have a career. And then we made the decision in my family that um, my husband would be the primary caretaker and he would enable my career to flourish. And so in many ways, I'm a first Mm. within my extended family. So that then raises so many questions for me. And one of those questions is, what did folks in your family think when you you decided that you were going to go to law school and become a lawyer? You know what? Um, I think they didn't know what to think um, because it had just never been done before. You know, my family actually comes from South Jersey. Both my parents came from dairy farmers. And so mm. me charting this new course, nobody knew what to do with me. I think they just right. tolerated it. <laughs> They're like, okay, we're not going to be able to stop her. So <laughs> let's just see what happens. That's awesome. I love that. And then once you got into law school as somebody who, you know, didn't have lawyers in your family, didn't have people who were, you know, necessarily close to you who could be mentors with knowledge about law school or about being a lawyer, what what was law school like for you? I mean, ha- was it disorienting? Was it just exciting from the beginning? Law school was hard. It was really hard. And I think that it's one of the ways I'm able to connect with students now who are first-generation students, because I remember very, very clearly just, just being lost. Particularly, it was like the beginning of the second year where you're just like, oh my God, am I actually going to be able to do this? No, it was really challenging. But I feel incredibly fortunate that I had a phenomenal first year summer job. And I actually worked at the Philadelphia Public Defender's Office. Ah. And that that experience, I knew I was really good at that. And uh, Mm -hmm. then it made law school feel like there was like a real end game, you know what I mean? And made everything else easier because I found something that I was really passionate about doing when I graduated. Well, one of the things that's funny to me about that story is when I was in law school, the summer after my first 
maybe after my second year, I worked for the Legal Aid Society Juvenile Rights Division for the summer. And I just remember having that experience and thinking, I 100% do not want to do this with my life. (laughs) It was just, I mean, just, you know, seeing the number of cases that people were working on and the pace at which they had to work. And, you know, they were doing work that was, that was incredibly consequential, right? I mean, they had kids' lives um, in their hands and I just found it so incredibly stressful. So I love the idea of you going to, you know, the, the Philadelphia Public Defender's office and being like, yes, <laughs> I have yes. found my people. Yes. So what, what was it about that experience that was so inspiring to you? Well, I just felt like it was, well, maybe it was the adrenaline rush. You know what I mean? Like you're on the ground, you're doing something so meaningful in that moment for that individual. Um, and so I really, I really did enjoy that. I love the camaraderie. I mean, it was a great office and it was really cool to have everybody working collectively, helping each other all in pursuit of this common goal to do justice for the clients that we were representing. And I didn't know it at the time, but one of the things I'm really grateful for is that I had a very visionary office and I had some phenomenally visionary mentors who really chose to see their jobs as lawyers very broadly. And I feel like that's one of the decisions you can make as a lawyer, like how you view your job. Some lawyers seem to really stay within their exact lane and some lawyers seem to see possibility everywhere. And I was really fortunate to have a mentor who encouraged me to see, to take every single case that I had and look at the potential policy implications and how my case connected to many, many other decisions, whether it was resources or access to counsel all around. And so that kind of training was really instrumental in how, in terms of how I viewed my career going forward. Yeah. One of the things that I think is often, you know, when you talk to people who are either doing public interest law or who who are interested in public interest law is that sort of divide between folks who are doing direct services work. You know, you've got individual cases, you are, you know, working with individual clients versus folks who are doing policy work um, or impact litigation. And it sounds like you got a, a mix of those in a way that I think is probably more rare than it should be. And maybe even just more difficult now because of the constraints that have been put on legal services offices. Yeah, I do think I do think you're right about that. I do think that it was a really fortunate position to be in, but it served me really well because all of the policy reform really grew out of individual cases. Like everything right. I've written about, everything, you know, all the appellate work, the policy reform work, and then becoming part of a national community. All of that was based in seeing what was going on with individual clients. Right. Right, exactly. And that's, you know, that's cer- certainly my experience has been um, that that's, that's the best way to sort of figure out what's wrong on the ground and then be able to take it to the places where it needs to go in order to actually make uh, systemic change. And it feels to me like that's really been a hallmark of your career, certainly your career um, at Rutgers. And I want to get into that, but I first, first I want to talk more about what happened after you um, got out of law school because you had... Uh, you know, a fairly extensive career, something 15 years or so before you actually came to to Rutgers to start the the Children's Justice Clinic. So what kind of work were you doing? Who were you doing it for? And how was that work foundational to what you now do as a clinician at, at Rutgers? So I spent most of my career before coming to Rutgers at the Public Defender's Office. Uh, in Philadelphia. And I'll get to that in a second. But I did have two experiences where I worked for law firms. One was a really small 
boutique law firm. And then one, my second summer, my 2L year, I worked for a very large law firm in Maine. Um, and I just want to say again, I don't subscribe to the public interest corporate divide. I think, you know, people seem to have that, that divide. It's one category or the other. I've learned a tremendous amount in all the experiences. And I think sometimes it's just as important to have a job that is not quite the right fit so you can know what is the right fit. So, mm-hmm. you know, having those firm experiences was really, really powerful because it really helped me sharpen. Well, why doesn't this quite work for me? What is it about this other place that really seems to fit? But at the public defender's office, yes, I was there for a number of years. I did, you know, the entire rotation and jury trials. And then for a while, I worked in the unit that represents children who are being transferred into adult court. But then I was fortunate enough to be the assistant chief of the juvenile unit, working with Bob Listenby, who was this phenomenal mentor that I mentioned earlier. And that was really, really life altering for me because first of all, I got to be a manager, but also it really connected me to the larger issues that were going on in the country and across the state of Pennsylvania. And it was a really a very exciting time because so many things were going on in the field of juvenile justice while I was there and, and continue to. There's, there's so much going on in the world around criminal justice right now. And I definitely want to get um, into that conversation because I think it's, it's, it's so important and it's so critical. But I also think, you know, one of the things that comes up often in the context of people who are interested in criminal law, you know, talking about divides is the divide between people who become public defenders and, or at least the perceived divide between people who become public defenders and people who go into prosecution. And I wonder if you also see that as being a divide that's potentially an unfair divide or if that, or or if you do feel like that's two really different sides of the coin. Well, I I really do agree that people see it as a divide. Um, But as I've always told all my clinical students, I mean, you can do good work anywhere. And I'm actually really proud. I think at this point in my career, I've trained more prosecutors than public defenders. And that's good because I'm telling you, I want want to be in the prosecutor's head. I really do. I want them to do all the things that we talked about in the clinic, in the classroom, all the stuff we read about adolescent development. And I want that to be in your mind as you're making charging decisions. So, yeah, so I, frankly, I'd like there to be less of a divide. I think that it would be a better criminal justice system if there was more collaboration, if there was more agreement on certain issues. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. So let's let's get into your, your life at Rutgers a little bit. So you came to Rutgers to start the Children's Justice Clinic. And can you tell folks who aren't familiar with our clinical program, what, what happens in the Children's Justice Clinic? Yes. So we started the clinic in 2007, and I had the great fortune to work with J.C. Lohr, who was a phenomenal lawyer when we started the program. And the way the clinic works is that third-year students are certified by New Jersey Supreme Court to practice under the student practice rule on my license. And so the students come in, they get certified, and then literally, like, it's really my goal that by the end of the first week of class, there are real cases in every student's hand. And so there's a lot of, you know, <laughs> and I have to say that like, yeah, I wasn't doing the clinic this semester. When you put a case in a student's hand, it's the real deal right now. Mm-hmm. This is your client. Go make a phone call, figure out who mm-hmm. this child is. But what the clinic does is it represents children who get arrested. And it's primarily in Camden, but we, but we have represented children all throughout South Jersey. And the clinic has students handle several different kinds of cases. So we handle 
cases where the child has just been arrested. So a student is gonna get a case that's at the very beginning of the process and work that case all the way through the disposition. And in juvenile court, the cases move very quickly. And so you're able to see a case generally from beginning to end, at least one case, if not more. But the other thing that I'm really passionate about is this concept of post-disposition representation, meaning I really want to know what happens to the child once they leave the courtroom. So the goal of juvenile justice is rehabilitation. And everybody has good intentions for like wanting things to work out for this kid. But in my experience, it often takes a lawyer to connect the dots and to make sure mm -hmm. that the details work out and to advocate for children once they leave the courtroom. Okay. And the students have an opportunity to do those cases. So um, how do how do the cases come to you? You know, I think when people think about criminal court, they they assume either you get a, you know, you pay for a private attorney because you have the money for that, or you get a public defender. So how how is it that 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 kids are lucky enough to be represented by the Children's Justice Clinic? So there are several ways. We take community referrals. So anybody from the community can call and request representation. And if we have space, we take clients that way. If they you know, are under a certain income, we're, we're always representing poor kids. That's what we're doing. We're totally free and we're always representing poor kids. But we take community referrals. Sometimes there are individuals who may just be above the indigency determination. And we may take those as well. We have court referrals. And I'm also on the pool attorney list in a number of counties. And so if there are conflicts, uh, cases where the public defender might take one co-defendant and there are several co-defendants, we can get cases that way too. Got it. I constantly tell students when they ask me for any sort of law school advice, I tell them do not graduate from law school without taking a clinic because I think it's so formative. And even if you don't end up doing the work that you're doing in your clinic, it's it's an experience that often will stick with you. And I can say as somebody who graduated from law school quite some time ago that I still think with some frequency about the clients who I represented when I was in my clinic. And one of the things that I think is so challenging about clinic work is one, as you say, you know, you sort of throw students into the fire and you have to start talking to clients and you have to interview and you have to counsel and you have to figure out, you know, what you're going to do with this case. And, and that's really challenging. But one of the pieces that I think can be even more challenging is that it's often the case that the law student's life experience is substantially different from the folks who they are representing. And I think that that can be sort of difficult sometimes for students to understand, but also sometimes difficult for the professor to figure out how to teach somebody to navigate those differences. Is that something that is that that you've you know thought about a lot as somebody um, who is a clinician? And how do you deal with those kinds of questions, whether it's questions of class differences or race differences or or gender differences? How do you negotiate that as somebody who's representing a client? Wow, Kim, that's a big question. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so, uh, yes, we talk about it. We talk about it all the time. I mean, there's obviously cross-cultural communication that needs to be discussed. And in all of my classes, whether they're the whether it's the clinic or if it's criminal procedure, I mean, the centrality of race in our juvenile justice system and our criminal justice system. I mean, I mean that is front and center. It has to be mm -hmm. because far and away, it's the most pressing issue that our juvenile justice system and criminal justice system faces, particularly in New Jersey. 
you know, there, there are challenges, but the challenges make such a rich learning environment. And mm -hmm. I have to say that even though they're brand new and they may not have had a, you know, incredibly broad life experience, the students will make up for it in passion and commitment. And what's extraordinary to me is that even though the student comes from a really different place, they're so committed to the case that the client and the parents respond really, really well. I mean, we get incredible results, not because the students, you know, are sophisticated or, you know what I mean, or exactly like mm -hmm. the guys, but because they try so hard. Mm -hmm. And it's exciting to see. It's exciting to see. And it's exciting to watch students build bonds with people and with people and families, you know, who may be different from them and realize that there's really not that much difference in at all. And talking about the Eagles can frankly go a long way. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, Great, definitely. Um, yeah, there, there are, there, there are many differences, but it really, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful place to learn. And one of the things I love about it is that you can't, like all the students who are so used to being smart and studying hard and like working for the right answer, frequently there is no right answer. Mm -hmm. So it really pushes you to develop a different style, a different aspect of yourself and to figure out how you're gonna be a professional. It's an mm -hmm. opportunity to kind of try on the costume of being a real lawyer in a real courtroom with real consequences, you know, and how you're gonna Absolutely. communicate, how you're gonna navigate. And often the students can handle so much more than they thought they could when they came in. And that's why I think clinic is so extraordinary of an opportunity. You know, it's different when you're on your feet and you're talking to that prosecutor in real time, or the mm -hmm. judge calls you up to the side, to, to sidebar, and you're like doing your case pitch right there. You're telling the judge why you need whatever you want. I mean, I make it my practice to always sit way in the back of the courtroom. And I do oh, wow. intentionally. Because if I'm sitting at the bar of the court, or if I'm standing next to you when the, when you're having a negotiation with the prosecutor, they're not going to pay attention to the student in the same way. You know what I mean? And so I really mm -hmm. want to move far away so they can feel the full weight of what it means to be a lawyer, you know? And then they'll yeah. see that because they're so prepared, they do a great job negotiating. I love that. So, so two things. Um, one is one of the reasons why I always like to ask that the, the big question that I just asked you about you know, clinic and difference and race and all those things is, you know, when I did my clinic in law school, I did a clinic where we worked with incarcerated women and my partner and I represented a woman who had a termination of parental rights proceeding going on. And she was probably in her mid twenties. So, you know, she was a little bit older than me, but, but not by much. And it, and, and I, what I will never forget is sitting in a visiting room at a prison in upstate, a women's prison in upstate um, New York and saying to this woman, you're going to lose, <laughs> right? I mean, we've gone through all the records and it just, it just looks terrible. You're going to be incarcerated for some time to come. There's not really something that we can do to keep them from terminating your parental rights. And I remember that, that the feeling of doing that and, and how powerful it was. And now that I'm much older and have kids of my own, I think about what that must have felt like for her to have the two of us sitting across from her and saying, the state's about to take your kid for good. You know, how do you, how do you teach a student to have those kinds of conversations and, you know, how important it is when students are having difficult conversations like that to create space for them to then talk about those experiences, to process those experiences, you know, to think about how, frankly, sometimes how traumatic it can be to be a lawyer who's working with people who are dealing with their own trauma. And I imagine that that has to be a part of the conversations that you have with students as well. 
Yeah, no, all of that. When, when there are big conversations like that, first of all, I do a whole class on difficult conversations because mm -hmm. I think difficult conversations happen everywhere. I mean, they're going to happen sometimes in negotiation, but sometimes when you're, when you have to give difficult news to a client, but it also happens working with your partner where you feel like you're doing all the work mm -hmm. and your partner is not. I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult to own your space and speak your truth and it takes practice. And we try to find, I try to practice those things in the clinic. In those big situations though, where you're talking about the experience you had with your client, when something of that magnitude is going on, I will sit with the students in the room while they're having that conversation with the client. Because mm. I think the gravitas of like having someone with 20 years experience helps the students, you know what I mean? It helps the family yeah. wrap their mind around something in case they have any, any questions. But the truth of the matter is, is that when you develop a great relationship through multiple interviews and conversations, and when the clients know that you're really honoring the decision that they're making as a family, frequently the difficult conversations aren't that bad because you've mm -hmm. prepared them to be thinking about this for a while now. So mm -hmm. if you're doing your job all the way through, it shouldn't come as a shock that this is a potential outcome. It's still hard, but, it, but you should be preparing them along the way. Absolutely. And, and hopefully you've created trust as well with, with the client at that point. Right. And the trauma is definitely an aspect of that. It's, it's definitely, you know, in how an individual might react and hopefully, you know, students are aware of their own trauma at, before they come into a situation mm -hmm. like this and can compensate for that because it's very, very frequent in the juvenile justice system. Absolutely. The other, the other thing that always stands out for me, uh, for folks who are clinicians, is how nervous I would be to have students practicing under my license. <laughs> right? I mean, so you, you know, you're, you're sort of on the hook. If, if mistakes get made, you're the person who's on the hook. So, you know, I, particularly as somebody who had had a long career where, you know, you're running your own cases, you're the person who's in charge, you're making the decisions. How was that transition? to teaching students and having to, you know, give them space to, to do the work on their own. Yeah. I mean, I have to say that you would think that is actually, I don't worry about that very much because the students are very prepared. And I make sure of that because we go, mm -hmm. we have our team meetings and then they have an agenda. And in this, in, in, in the court plan, we have talked about everything that could have possibly happened. So there should be no surprises, which really minimizes my stress about things going off the rails. And I have to say, in all the years that I've done this clinic, I can't even, maybe once was there a problem, but far and away, it's not a problem because like there's trust and yeah. practiced and they're prepared and they're ready to go. And I always tell everybody, you know, like I'm sitting in the way in the back, but at any moment you can always say, your honor, may I speak to my supervisor? Do you know what I mean? There's right. always help to get. So that is actually less stressful because like I said, the students are so prepared. Awesome. Yeah. And you're, and you're probably just not as tightly wound as I am too. <laughs> so, which is, which is totally fair. One of the things that you said earlier about the juvenile justice system is that it is a system that is supposedly built for rehabilitation. And as we have these larger conversations about criminal justice reform, which I think have really been very focused on adults who are incarcerated or, or who are arrested, what, what's your sense of where we are in terms of the juvenile justice system? Is it in fact a system 
that focuses on rehabilitation? Is it in fact a system where you know, kids who go through it can expect to sort of come out better on the other side of it? And, you know, what are some of the things that you would like to see changed or reformed about the system that we have now? Yeah, well, I have to say in in the space of my career, there has been enormous positive change. There really has. Uh, A lot of things are much, much better than when I started. I do think that the, the line of Supreme Court cases that started with Roper and then went through you know, JDB versus North Carolina and Graham and Montgomery versus Alabama, all of those are are really huge. So in 2005, the United States Supreme Court determined that if you committed a crime before you were 18, you are no longer eligible for the death penalty. Okay. And so the death penalty for juveniles was struck down in 2005. And the way it was struck down was a reliance not only on proportionality and culpability, but also on basic adolescent development and kind of what Mm -hmm. every parent knows. Like, you know, my 14-year-old really ain't that smart. (laughs) They are. And, you know, and we know this as adults. There's a reason why you have to be 18 to get a tattoo, you know, or to buy alcohol or whatever. All these things that we have in place to protect children. All of that thinking shifted when we actually were able to use brain science and do brain scans to see that the frontal lobe was not fully developed. And the Supreme Court relied on that scientific evidence that children were not just short adults. Their brains were really still evolving and actually evolve all the way up until around the mid-20s. Right. That's a big deal. That makes kids less culpable. That really shifted the policy nationally. In, in the early 90s, we had, you know, the age of the super predator and the whole entire juvenile justice system got much more punitive. But then Roper started the shift in the other direction. And that has been extraordinary to watch over the past 15 years. And mm-hmm. I think that state legislatures have adopted that thinking and are doing more to make the juvenile justice system less punitive. Now, you asked me what I want to see changed. I mean, I still think there's a whole lot that needs to be changed. I think that we still need to do a lot of work around transparency. I think Mm. that we don't know if the juvenile justice system is working or not, if kids are better off or not, until we have more data. And unfortunately, that's a place where I feel like the system as a whole really falls down. Like, you know, I couldn't tell you if a program is good or not good, because I don't know if there is a high recidivism rate or if most of the kids from this program get their high school diploma or how long they stay or anything. I mean, there's just so little data around programs, but also around a lot of other things too. I mean, there's, there's very little data in terms of who gets charged with what and why, and, you know, does probation help or hurt? There's a lot of, you know, there's been a lot of research already, but I still think we need a lot more data to understand whether the intention of juvenile court is actually meeting its stated goal of rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. Got it. Now, one of the things that you have also done in your career, one of many impressive things that you've done in in your career is this work that you did with the MacArthur Foundation, with their juvenile justice reform initiative, and in particular, your work as the the due process monitor for the settlement agreement with the the juvenile justice system in uh, in Shelby County, Tennessee. So can you talk about how, how that came to be and, you know, what was the work that you were expected to do there as that, as that monitor? So yes, in terms of, of Shelby County, in 2012, I was appointed the due process monitor 
And this was after years and years of data collection by individuals that showed there was real significant problems occurring in Memphis, Tennessee in Shelby County. And the Department of Justice and Shelby County signed a memorandum of understanding in order to improve their juvenile court system. I was the due process monitor, but there were two other monitors as well. One was a disproportionate minority contact or racial equity monitor, and one was about the conditions in the detention center. So I was okay. one of three monitors that went down there. It really was historic because it has never been done before where the Department of Justice tried to reform a county's juvenile justice system. So it was it was really exciting. Big picture, I think some things there were progress. Shelby County now has a juvenile defender office, a, a division of the public defender's office that is specifically assigned to juvenile cases. And so that is definitely an improvement. Unfortunately, there's not as much progress as I would have liked to have seen, but some progress was made. Okay. And so um, as between the, or among the, the three different monitors, what exactly did the due process monitor do that was distinct from what the racial equity monitor was doing or what the other monitor was doing? So my main job was to make sure that the, the rights, the due process rights that children were entitled to were actually occurring in Shelby County. Mm-hmm. One, of the, one of the big rights involved access to counsel. So when is this child getting a lawyer? Has that child been trained? Is that child independent? You know, is that child, is that lawyer qualified to do their job? All of those questions was a big component of what I did. Another big area was the issue of transfer, transferring children to adult court. Um, When I arrived, Shelby County had transferred a lot of juveniles to the adult court system, which is a really, really extreme thing to do. Um, You know, at the time when I was in Shelby, the county of Shelby routinely transferred more juveniles than the entire state of New Jersey. I mean, so just to put it into some context, I mean, one county in Tennessee, and we have, you know, we have a lot of cities, and um, we still, as a state, we transferred many less. So the issue of transfer was one of the other big things that we focused on, in addition to other court processes as well, and, you know, making sure that there are recordings and that lawyers could get orders. Um, and all the minutia that makes a fair court process, discovery discovery processes, whether or not the lawyers were getting discovery in a timely way, whether or not evaluations were available. You know, I think there was like over 52 different points that needed to be focused on over a six-year period in order to come into compliance. And many of the issues did come into compliance, and then some did not. Mm-hmm. It sounds like they were at a, a very far end of the spectrum, so trying to move them all the way to the other end was almost certainly going to be a, a difficult task yeah. um, to engage in. And then there was, and then there was a, a, a big administrative shift in 2016. And so like right. all of the, <laughs> and so yes, and that changed the dynamics as well. Of course, of course. You also have done some really important juvenile justice reform work in New Jersey, you know, as part of your clinical work, but also, you know, using that clinical work to inform larger efforts to change the way the system works for everybody, not just for individual clients. So can you talk about some of that work a little bit, particularly, I think, the work that you did about uh, juveniles being held in in solitary? Yes. So I was really fortunate when I got here. I already knew several people, primarily Laura Cohen, who is my colleague at the Newark 
law school who is who is just phenomenal. But when I got here, she and I, in addition to the P Public Defender's Office of New Jersey, applied for and received this MacArthur Foundation grant. And one of the things we were trying to do was expand access to counsel to make sure kids had access to lawyers once they went into facilities. And the very, very first client I had in a uh, New Jersey facility was this young man who had been held in solitary for six months. And at the time, that was perfectly legal under the New Jersey regulations. It was permissible to keep a child in solitary for that long. And that case really started a long, long chain of events. Um, that case became its own civil rights law firm, a lawsuit handled by the Juvenile Law Center and another firm. But it also led to the creation of a juvenile justice reform coalition. And I have to say that one of the big things I've learned is if you're focused on doing big things, you can never do big things by yourself, but always take many, many stakeholders. And fortunately, there were many people, once the issue of solitary was exposed, many, many people worked for many years to eventually create the legislative reform that no longer allows what happened to Troy continue to happen. And so that's really awesome. Um, and since then, many more legislative changes have occurred. And in fact, I was just reading on um, an email today that there's a new attorney general directive, which strengthens station house adjustments. And all of these things are terrific. All of these things are really extraordinary. So many good things have happened in New Jersey. Another one of the big things that we addressed is this thing called administrative transfer. I had a client and the way he got to me is that his mother called the clinic and told us this story, but uh, he was in a juvenile facility and one day a guard came in and told him to change his jumpsuit. And then he was put in the back of a van and taken to an adult prison without, without a lawyer, without ever seeing a judge. Um, and it was, again, it was legal under the regulations at that time, this concept of administrative transfer. And we challenged the constitutionality of that regulation and were successful. So that no longer happens in New Jersey either. That's great. That's, that's great. I mean, and that's sort of the thing where the ability to not just sort of change the world for that individual client, but to actually make sure that, that the young people who follow afterwards also aren't going to be treated that way, which I think is just, is, is tremendous, tremendous work. And, you know, we're, we're obviously in this space of, thinking as a country, I hope deeply, but maybe not so deeply in some cases, about our, our criminal justice system in general, you know, not necessarily just the juvenile justice system, the race and class implications of it, the gender implications of it. And I, and I wonder a little bit about whether, you know, we talk about prison abolition or defunding the police or, you know, all these other things um, that are going on. And I, I wonder sort of where, where you sit you know, do you do you have a position sort of on what we should be doing when it comes to people, whether they're adults or young people who transgress? Yes. So, yeah, I have a lot to say on this, one, but I guess where do I want to start? Um, I think that, I, I think one of the most heartbreaking things I see is that often children who have mental health issues are criminalized, and so mm -hmm. I think that we need to find a way to fix our broken mental health system. Unfortunately, parents are still sometimes encouraged to call the police, you know, as mm. uh, as a way to quote unquote get help, and it yeah. leads to a whole chain, you know, bunch of chain reactions. 
you know, if you have resources and you come into the juvenile justice system with an intact family and resources, chances are you're likely to, you know, you're going to be okay. You know, um, mm-hmm. if you're white, okay, I want to put that right. there too. All right, let's start <laughs> with there too. So if you're a white family with resources and you come into the juvenile justice system, most likely it's going to work out okay. But I think we still have tremendous work to do, particularly on the mental health. I don't think mental health should be treated within the criminal justice system. It never mm-hmm. works well because we impose all these rules that, that they have to follow. But there's so much fluidity and specialization needed with mental health issues that the criminal justice system just, the juvenile justice system just isn't good at. Yeah. So I have to say that that would be like up there on my list, taking, taking those out. In terms of the things like defund the police, I have enormous respect for police officers because mm-hmm. I, I see a, a, a lot of the very, very good work that they do. So, you know, I'm not abolish the police. I, I don't say that, but I do think that the police officers, I think that Camden has done an extraordinary job of changing how they police. I think the incorporation of psychologists and social workers into police departments, so it's less crime and punishment focused and more like, let, let's really deal with this problem um, yeah. would be enormously helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I do feel like sometimes you have to have the extreme conversation to get to yes. the, the middle position. So uh, I'm definitely, definitely fine with watching that happen. So I had another question, which is sort of going back a little bit. And, and part of this is coming from my, my own current experience of, of raising teenagers, which is difficult <laughs> to say the least. Um, and so one of the things, though, that I think must be challenging about representing a young person is, yes, their brains aren't as fully developed, they're not as mature, they haven't had the same level of life experience, but some of them are also really smart and have had a lot of life experience and have had to make a lot of decisions and have had to, you know, take care of themselves or take care of their families and sort of move through the world with a level of sophistication, right? That might not be true of, of every young person. And so, you know, one of the challenges I think as, as a person representing adolescents has to be, you know, how do you respect them as thinking people, but also recognizing that that thought process, as you said earlier, is impacted by the fact that they are young and that their brains aren't fully developed and that they're, um, you know, they act impulsively and all these other sorts of things. That must be tough to balance sometimes, I would think. It is. It, it is. I mean, I, I think that there is, I have this understanding, though, that adolescents develop, they don't develop all aspects of themselves at the same time. So, like, they mm-hmm. might be really, really smart, but that doesn't mean that they are emotionally mature. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so, mm-hmm. or, and I just think that keeping that in mind, just because you're getting A's in your sophomore high school class doesn't really mean you know how to make decisions, you know, mm-hmm. or, or, you know, avoid peer pressure in your peer group. And so, but I think that, you know, over time, having conversations with your client, you're going to know how to, you know, where that client falls and how to, right. and how to treat them. Um, but it takes talking to them. It's, it's, and that's one of the beautiful things that Roper and the Supreme Court gave us is this move away from a one size fits all approach. I mean, every adolescent is maturing along different rates not all 14 year olds or 15 year olds are the same by any, you know, by any stretch. And so coming into the conversation with that awareness, you know, that you're going to have to make this individualized, this representation individualized. That's what I encourage the students to do. Right. Absolutely. Now, one of the other things that you have done is uh, published a book 
called When Kids Get Arrested, What Every Adult Should Know. You know, if you had to kind of rattle off some of the things that people should be thinking about when their kid calls them and says, I'm at the police station, uh, what are some of the things we should be thinking about? Yeah, so I can, this is really short, Kim, because it's like so simple. If I tell parents one thing, it's to tell, tell their kids this. They need to know four words. I want a lawyer. Yes. They can just remember those four. I want a lawyer. I've trained my own teenagers, my own kids on this. Everybody needs to know that because if you can do that, it will slow down the process and buy you enough time for an adult to show up and help guide you. But in my experience, it never, ever, ever helps for the juvenile, the child to give a statement to the police without a lawyer. It never helps. Unfortunately, sometimes the parents, they want to do the right thing and they say, oh, just tell the truth. It'll help you. It doesn't. It doesn't. (laughs) You can tell the truth later. You know, Um, you can tell the truth later after you've had some space to think about it. But in the moment when the adrenaline is high and there's so much stress and fear, it's never a good idea, you know, at that point. And one of the things I would put on my list is that every, every child should have a lawyer at the police station. There should not be interrogations of children you know, who don't have lawyers with them. It doesn't make any sense. Absolutely. And I I will profess deep ignorance because I thought that you couldn't, well, I guess you can interview with a parent present. Yeah. You just interview kids with nobody there. It it was, it's state by state. Different states have different rules around this. Got it. Okay. So I want to talk about um, a little bit about sort of what you what you see as on your agenda going forward. So I know that you're interested in issues of mass incarceration. I know that you're interested in issues of women in the law. I know that you're, of course, still interested in issues of juvenile justice. So what, where, where do you think is sort of the next place that you want that you want to make your mark? I mean, you've done so much within the state of New Jersey in particular to make our juvenile justice system better. So what, what are you going to fix next? <laughs> well, I really want to be of service to our community, the Camden mm-hmm. community. And so that's really, really important to me. Um, And one of the positive things about the changes in juvenile law is that the cases have gone down. And so I'm very interested in finding a way to to leverage the resources of the clinic to help help the community as much as possible. And one of those ways I'm thinking about is uh, addressing the needs of returning citizens and perhaps doing more of that kind of work. Um, I think that mass incarceration policies have been particularly hard on cities like Camden. And the resources of students might be very helpful there. Um, I think that there's a lot of areas where people don't have access to counsel. And so that's one of the things I'm seriously considering moving in that direction. The other positive thing about that is that since it's it's less in court, um, mm-hmm. it would expand curricular opportunities for perhaps you know, 2L students and perhaps even social justice undergraduates. I think that that, that could be helpful to the community and to, to Rutgers. Yeah. And, you know, something that you said earlier, I just want to repeat it here, which is, you know, no matter where those students end up in their in their lifetimes and in, in, in their careers, the hope would be having had these kinds of experiences and, you know, maybe maybe visiting a prison for the first time or maybe talking to somebody who's been incarcerated for the first time, that those kinds of experiences will inform their understanding of the world going forward. And, 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 I, and I always feel good about that. I totally agree. I mean, you could be a partner at a really fancy law firm, but if you had that experience, you might be able to direct resources to you know, one of those causes that would impact mm-hmm. that person. That, and so it's all good. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk to me. This was just a huge, huge pleasure. And, you know, I probably don't say it enough, but I am just so much in awe of the work that you do and the work that our other clinicians do, both the work that you do with our students, but the work that you do within the community in, in Camden. And, and, and I think of it as being, you know, one of the higher purposes of what we do as a law school. Well, so, thank you. And thank you so much for asking, Kim. It was great. Of course. Of All course. Right. Have a good day. The Power of Attorney is produced by Rutgers Law School. With two locations, minutes from Philadelphia and New York City, Rutgers Law offers the prestige and reputation of a large, nationally known university with a personal small campus experience. Learn more by visiting law.rutgers.edu.